0: Oh, friendships Quote, and unquote, more.
1: Friendships, <laughs> Heidegger. <laughs> She's
0: quite sociable. Apparently. Quite
1: sociable. Yes.
0: Mark Standish and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies, casually known as ICS. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member, which is what we call our students. In this podcast, we get together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS.
1: Each week, we will invite a new panel of guests, including past and present members of ICS and Friends of the Institute to join us. We'll ask them to share their journey in scholarship and how it connects to their faith and their lives. I'm Danielle Yet, and I'm also an ICS junior member. With us today, we have Hector Acero-Ferrer, junior member and assistant director of the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at ICS. We'll introduce Hector when we get to our second segment. That gets us to the first of our new regular segments. Don't miss this. In this segment, we will highlight all kinds of things that we don't want you as our listeners to miss out on. New books and articles in philosophy, theology, and current affairs, important events and anniversaries in these same worlds and in the church year, and every now and then, an event at the Institute for Christian Studies. So Mark, what's something that you think our listeners shouldn't miss out on?
0: So I'm going to switch gears here a little bit uh, from what we usually do, and I'm going to talk about an article that The New Yorker republished, which is called Remembering W.H. Auden, um, and it's written by Hannah Arendt. Um, And Hannah Arendt was friends with W.H. Auden. It sort of recounts their relationship, uh, how their friendship developed in the 20s um, in Germany, and how it followed through to the end of their lives. Um, And about W.H. Auden's love for love, um, which I thought was really interesting and right up the alley of one of our colleagues here, uh, Jim Oltheus. Um, The article went into his conversion experience And that might have a little bit to do with why Auden loved love so much, Um, but it doesn't explicitly address that question.
1: My don't miss this item for this week is uh, an event that's happening at ICS, and it's one of our occasional, there's not really a regular time frame in which they happen, but it's an occasional um, series of seminars that ICS hosts called our Scripture, Faith, and Scholarship Seminar. And... Our next one is happening on Thursday, December 6th at 3 p.m. here at 59 St. George Street. And this seminar is going to feature Dr. Esther Akalazzi. Uh, She's the Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology and Intercultural Studies here at Knox College. And she's also just recently published a book called Powers, Principalities, and the Spirit, Biblical Realism in Africa and the West. Um, So she's going to come and talk to us about kind of how her life and her scholarship and her faith all interact with each other. And given that that is a method of talking about the world that we at Critical Faith appreciate, we are hoping to get a chance to um, interview her a bit about that. And hopefully we'll be able to bring some of that to you at a future date here on the podcast.
0: Fingers crossed.
1: Fingers crossed. Yes. Yes.
2: Jesus Christ was a man that traveled through the land, hardworking man and brave. He said to the rich, Give your goods to the poor, so they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. I'm Dean Detloff, a junior member at ICS. Ever feel like there's something kind of off about Jesus and capitalism? Like, maybe this 1st century rabbi would have had a few things to say about a world where the richest 1% got 82% of the world's wealth last year. Well, you wouldn't be alone. In fact, there's a long history of Christians opposing capitalism in lots of creative ways. In January, I'm teaching an online course called Organized Religion, Christianity and Anti-Capitalism in the US and Canada. We'll look at how Christians rubbed elbows with, and sometimes even joined, anarchists, socialists, communists, and others from the 1800s till now, and we'll think together about what this history might mean for us today. It costs $90 Canadian, which is a pretty deep bargain. I'd give it to you for free, but my landlord won't accept my syllabus for rent. For more information, visit icscanada.edu or email academic-registrar at icscanada.edu. Play us out, got, three? This song was made in New York City of rich mans and preachers and slaves. If Jesus was to preach like he preached in Galilee, they would lay Jesus Christ in his grave.
1: In the second of our new regular segments, we want to give you a glimpse of what it's like to be critically faithful in a graduate school of philosophy, theology, and interdisciplinary studies like ICS. So we will simply be asking our guest, what are you working on? We'll be talking about seminars and courses taking place at ICS at this moment, the reading and other research our members are doing, our writing, publishing, presentations, and conference participation. So welcome, Hector. Thank you, Glad you're here.
3: (laughs) I am glad to be here.
1: (laughs) So we ask our guests a standard set of three intro questions. So first, tell me, what was your favorite book from your childhood?
3: Not only my favorite, but my first book. Um, It's not only a book, it's a series of books. So, um... I'm sure the same thing happens in North America than it does in Colombia. Um than uh, or it used to, then people used to go from house to house selling encyclopedias. Oh yeah. Um so we had that. Um it was maybe 1989, and um the guy came a couple of times with the en- en- encyclopedia set, and I loved it. So eighty nine, uh, I both born in eighty six, I was three and a half. (laughs) And, um, I love that. I love, I love the idea of all that knowledge being in, in, in those books. So I insisted and insisted and insisted. And even though I couldn't read yet, my mom bought them for me. Um, and I was also recently, I've been wrestling with the, um, idea that, um, my parents were normal parents really. They <laughs> they didn't do a lot of the things that, that a lot of children go through and one of them was um reading to me. So they never really read to me before I sleep. But I asked them to read constantly from the encyclopedia. <gasps> so uh, I was about the countries and um little bits of history. I was fascinated by that. I don't know. For some reason that was my so that was, oh, that's
1: Oh, it's great. I remember When I was young, my mom got bequeathed, I don't know, uh, this encyclopedia set from her dad as well. And they're just, they are fascinating when you're a kid. Like, I could find anything about the world out just by going into these books. It's a lot of fun.
3: Yeah. I especially love the the like the geography section of it and like mm-hmm. comparing it mm-hmm. to history and I remember being fascinated by people knowing everything about everything that happened in time or yeah. in if that is happening in space. So that was my fascination with it most. Of <laughs>
1: uh, all right. So second question. So for our listeners who live in or may visit Toronto, what is your favorite bar or coffee shop here?
3: Okay. Again. There is a, a true answer and a very true answer to this question. So I also <laughs> thought about it. Um I um there is a place called Boxcar Social. Um there are two or three locations in Toronto, and there is one near my house in Summerhill. Um and that's it's a very cool place. Um my, you know, they a bar. Is it a bar? Is it a coffee shop? Is it a restaurant? Is it like, what is it? (laughs) And there, there are all all these hipsters dressed in their, um, in their very carefully designed gowns and all of that. And (laughs) there I am completely like out of that world, but sitting with my, uh, reading on Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or something very uncool. Um, so I like that place. I, I, and I like the contrast. And I like it more during the summer because they have a little patio in the back. Mm-hmm. And um, I, not really the summer, but the spring, when it's still a little chilly out there and people don't want to go out yet, but I am the only one out there. It's, it's a really fun experience. It's really nice, and they have a lot of very nice coffee options and all of that.
1: That is a fun place.
3: That was my mm, true answer. But the very true answer (laughs) is I love airports, and (laughs) I love Tim Hortons, and I love sitting at the Tim Hortons at the airport at the pearson airport here in toronto for many reasons i i i, I love the idea of sending people off like in, in journeys um i love the idea of people arriving and encountering and all that but the tim hortons here has an extra value is that you often get a tourist um ordering something like let's say someone from from europe or latin america with Perfect English in front of someone behind the counter who is Canadian and, and is like English is maybe their third, fourth language. And so you see how like what citizenship is all about there is yeah. so complicated. And, uh, that interaction is just, it makes me really happy of being in Canada. So I love sitting there and doing work in that space, uh, while waiting for someone or sometimes I. Go, even if I'm away oh ah,
1: That's great. So our third and last intro question is also the most controversial. Who do you think is the most overrated philosopher of our time, or if you like, of all time? Both versions,
3: please. I approach philosophers and their work like I approach people on the street. Like a genuine <laughs> conversation. And there are two things that I find very difficult to interact with. Um, The first one is someone who um, thinks that their experience is your experience of the world. So they they immediately assume that what you've experienced is just exactly like theirs. And the second one is people that think that they intend any possible answer to the interaction so um if if you agree with them that's what they intended if you disagree with mm-hmm. them oh that's what they they wanted to create controversy <laughs> If i hate that you always have an intention and it's a very particular one so this philosopher i think is to be blamed for both
1: both oh no
3: and it's nietzsche i know i'm going to be uh, in trouble and i'm probably going to get hate mail after this. Even from
1: people here. <laughs> I know.
3: From very from very good friends. But I just... And it, it's, it's a long relationship with Nietzsche because Nietzsche was one of the first philosophers I read uh, when I was doing my undergrad in Colombia. And um, reading it in Latin America, I didn't know how to articulate this back then. But... I was so uncomfortable with the fact that what I was reading there was telling me that uh, my experience of Christianity should look like what he was describing. Um And it wasn't. It's, it's, it couldn't be further from the, the experience of Christianity in Latin America. Mm. Um Now I have the language then to name that, but my discomfort then was it was just uneasiness and I didn't know if it was just, I wasn't liberated enough or modern enough or more postmodern enough to be able to understand and like him because all my classmates were in love with him. So you
1: mentioned that you do work with interfaith dialogue. Um, Is that something that you're working on right now or what are you working on in that realm right now?
3: Okay. So I just, Finish my work in the Parliament of the World's Religions, which just happened in Toronto, and that's for those who don't know about it, which is is popular within some circles but not all. Is the largest interfaith, interreligious dialogue in multicultural dialogue gathering in the world. So we had over eighty thousand people participating, wow. and um, I was kind of helping to organize that, but at the same time I was um, Presenting, so that was those. It was interesting. I work with a couple of local and Canadian organizations that then then um, do interfaith dialogue and cooperation. And um, um, on two fronts, one of them um, research on interfaith initiatives, so trying to see if there um, are kind of need or like innovative interfaith experiments happening across the country, which. There are, uh, and trying to understand them, assess them, um, evaluate them and create kind of a, a set of best practices out of that or promising practices. So that's, that's one of the, the things I was talking about. And the second one, the second aspect is youth and, um, and dialogue. So youth engagement in intercultural and interfaith dialogue. So those, um, that's kind of my more kind of activist type work. Um, and that continues even after the parliament. Uh, there's a lot of energy that came out of that experience, which will continue to kind of shape interfaith conversation in Canada. So I'm looking forward to what was coming out of that.
1: Yeah. Well, that's very tied to your, your actual research too, right? So what was your experience of presenting those things at the parliament like? And how do you think it's going to carry into what you what you research?
3: Well maybe three things there um, the first one people don't necessarily know that they are doing things that are innovative. Um, a lot of local communities are um, develop their own ways of dealing with diversity and diversity within religion um, and they don't necessarily call it interfaith. they don't necessarily, um, know that what they are doing hasn't been done anywhere else. So the parliament was a really good venue for me to, to identify some of those and see, mm. okay, this person is coming from, uh, Mississauga and <clears throat> in the, in the Peel region, which is where Mississauga is. Um, there are many emerging, um, dialogue platforms and they one, some of them are Crisis based, based. So as they get new, um, immigrants coming in, they, they try to address the difference by having larger dialogue or different dialogue or, or trying new things. Or, um, there are some, um, kind of social justice based. So they, they go and work together on something and they discover that they are uh, through that work, uh, that collective work. They, um, they develop a way of thinking about. Their cooperation and how it's possible to cooperate with people who are radically different from you. Um, so that's maybe a way in which um, in, in which I that was my kind of my own research has been enriched by by that. And the second aspect of it is about um, religious narratives in general. Um, a lot of the the research that I am doing for my own PhD is on the way in which we interact with religious narratives and kind of how we remember them, what we take as, um, memory landmarks from all those stories that have been told and retold over time. Mm. Um, so seeing people from radically diverse traditions, from different corners of the world, um, talking about their own narratives and trying to share their narratives with other people and, um, going through the struggle of what is kind of the cultural difference on top of the religious difference on top of the, um, ethnic difference. There are so many, so many layers to that. So that, that's another aspect of how that, that enrich my work. And the third part of it is just the human encounter. As I said at the beginning, <laughs> I, am. Um, I interact with thinkers or with ideas as I interact with people. Um, so how I interact with people continues to shape how I interact with ideas. So being there and having to deal with the very kind of mundane conflicts that come up in the context of organizing a big conference, um, especially with people who are so, um, have different cultures around work. Um, then that, that was, that wasn't reaching as well. Yeah. So
1: those things are all very connected for you. I know, just knowing you personally. But do you find that there is a difference with how you can or are able to engage with people doing your more activist side of work versus like your research? Or do you find that that's a difficulty or that it's easier or that it brings out certain things? I,
3: maybe the best way to answer that is, has my research and my work at ICS affected the way I do activism? Mm. And the answer is definitely yes. Um, is, is equipped me to first understand all those interactions better, um, understand the differences better, understand the other better, or at least see The, the complexity and the, um, the kind of multiple belongings of different people in, in, in a context like interreligious dialogue Mm -hmm. or interreligious cooperation in a project. So I am more at peace because of what I've done here when I enter into that context. Um, and also I feel I can get better results with the, the the toolkit that I've developed through, through that. So like, all the ideas on narrative, which are not mine, they, they come mainly for, from Paul record in my case, uh, or Richard Kearney that, that those two figures have helped me understand how narratives impact, uh, people of faith. So it also helps me interact with people of faith better. Mm-hmm. Uh, Even with my own people, people in my own tradition, um, or, um, the understanding on like responsibility or, um, forgiveness that one can gather from someone like Hannah Arendt. I, that, then I import that and I put it into what I do at work and it enriches that a lot. And at the same time, it allows me to gather more from those interactions Mm -hmm. and, and be more alert to what could be kind of research moments. Like, oh, (laughs) this is a finding. I should go back and work with it and try to philosophically see what is behind what is happening.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned uh, a toolkit. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like, what exactly is that? Do you recommend that people... Is there any way to recommend people have a similar kind of toolkit? Or is it just a personal way of interacting with your research and their situations?
3: Well, it is a personal thing, but um, I would recommend it to people. Like I think then, especially when I encounter younger um, undergrad students that find someone who is a um, philosopher of choice or uh, just a writer, someone that they, they admire, and they go with that person all the way through. And um, that's just a very challenging situation to be in because people have failures, people, um, mm-hmm. and there are, there is all this drama around Hannah Arendt and racism or about, um, like what I was mentioning about Nietzsche earlier, mm-hmm. or uh, like all, all the like gender inclusivity issue of all the philosophers to the ones in our time. Um, so to marry someone that way is, is, it's very difficult to marry a philosopher, but <laughs> to, um, understand what they contribute to you as part of a toolkit, as a tool that you're putting in a larger toolbox that is going to shape who you end up being as a philosopher. Um, you take things from that are important from Hannah Rand and then you try to combine it with somebody else. And does it work? It doesn't. You take tools out and in depending on how, what, what works. And then you create your own, um, your own box that you book with, and um, it allows you to to see the world and um, hopefully communicate what you think about the world with other people in meaningful ways.
1: What are you writing right now, Hector?
3: (laughs) What I'm trying to... Assess or look into is um, the truth and reconciliation process in Colombia. Um, mm. See some philosophical underpinnings to that. So um, I've divided that in kind of three three parts. Um, one of them is um, using Hannah Arendt's philosophy, um, particularly around um, the importance of resistance um, in kind of political uh, political life. Um, so I wanna try to articulate with that uh, how um, resistance was very important for the truth and reconciliation process to actually happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So I haven't said this before, but I'm Colombian and I'm very invested in what is happening in Colombia right now with the reconciliation. Process mm-hmm. is a very complicated process. It hasn't gotten resolved. It, there have been votes around it. People half of the countries against it, half of, half of the countries in favor of it. But um, it is a hopeful moment. It's a moment in which people are talking about things. So trying to understand how that's possible in the midst of that climate is one of the questions behind behind that paper, at least. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to see through the tools, toolkit, that <laughs> then Hannah Arendt gives how um how resistance works and how resistance is modeled by people mm-hmm. uh and by communities. So that's one of them. Second one, um there is a, a term which I'm sure is is come up in other contexts or like a similar um concept. Uh, but in, in Colombia it's been I I'll transliterate it as Dignifying recognition, mm-hmm. so um, part of the reconciliation talks center around the the concept of um, what does it mean to to really forgive, and what does what does what is needed for forgiveness to happen, mm-hmm. and back and forth, all philosophers have talked about that. So mm-hmm. you end up saying, well, forgiveness is something that is kind of granted and is not is not really there is not a formula to it, but um, in the Colombian case, the, the victims of the conflict came up with this idea of uh, dignifying recognition, is that um, re- forgiveness is only possible when the type of recognition that is happening restores somehow the dignity of, of the victim. Mm, yeah, right. um, so I'm using Paul Ricord to look into that. Um, He's... His, um, latest last work um the course of recognition I'm, I'm looking into that and trying to see how he kind of um he, exp- he articulates and explores the the idea of recognition being not only a, a cognitive um, exchange but being um, a very tangible kind of gift exchange, mm-hmm. which is a theological yeah. thing more than it is philosophical, but he tries to give the philosophy around it and um, it seems to match what is happening here. Um, people don't want exchange. with People don't want reparation. They want um, somehow to be recognized by the perpetrator, be uh, recognized as people, mm-hmm. uh, people that they've hurt. Um, so that's that's what I'm trying to look at there. Then the third one um, is Richard Carney, so it's uh, humanizing the other through um, through narrative. So I'm trying to look specifically in how um, liberation theology or the narratives that liberation theology has um, has prioritized from Christianity, how those narratives are allowing people to to achieve reconciliation. Um, so uh, by what by um, Complexifying their own vision of 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 what it means to be Colombian or what what it means to be a people. So a lot of those narratives in the in the Old Testament, which are be, are very uh, important to liberation theology, are narratives in which there are different groups and there is there is mass murder and people go against each other all the time and then somehow they all end up living in the same area, mm. kind of peacefully. So that that is done a lot for what people think about the Colombian conflict and mm. the resolution the possible resolution for it well, I look forward to
1: reading them they sound very timely and it's hard to work those things through kind of in the midst of enacting them right so doing that kind of reflective work in the middle of it all I think it's really important
3: yeah I've done a little bit of kind of social media interaction with people in the process and it that makes it more difficult because um, um, because it is happening people are very um sensitive to whatever you say or how you interpret what they are going through so mm-hmm. um, i try to do things in social media so that i get gain insight into what is happening but instead of that i get hostility from both yeah. sides of the of the the yeses and the noes
1: it's mm. interesting because like philosophically you're trying to make sense of something that people are wrapped up in wholly, like not just philosophically, right? So it's, yeah, it's just a difficult thing to make like make sense of all the little pieces, it seems like.
3: Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make sense of the little pieces, but <laughs> at least of some of the larger um, movements. Yeah. Um, one of the, the things that I'm trying to do now is move to um, put them in conversation with with local people, Mm -hmm. um, who are thinking about that philosophically. Um, there is a tendency in Colombia to use, use Western philosophy to, to understand their Mm -hmm. own, like our own situation. And I don't want to do that. Even though I'm using people Mm -hmm. that are not Latin American, I am very aware of, the wisdom that is emerging from from the people themselves. So I am trying to use even figures that are not philosophers, like people who who are models for the way of thinking, the new way of thinking about um, about a post-conflict Colombia um, community leaders and their thoughts. And trying to incorporate that in conversation with, with Arendt or with Ricor or with Carney and see what, what comes out of it.
0: In the third of our new regular segments, we want to talk directly to the professors of the future. Moving on from what you've been working on, we will talk about what it is like to be a scholar and how you made your way to academic life. We hope over time to map the journey from being an undergraduate student to being a professor of philosophy or theology with an emphasis on teaching philosophy in undergraduate programs. This week, we'll hear from Hector about how he came from being an undergraduate and how he ended up in ICS so Hector tell us a little bit about your story
3: there are many things that brought me to ICS um, the um, the most kind of recent event was me studying at the Toronto School of theology hmm. with the Jesuits and um, that kind of, very interesting in ecumenical exchange between the Jesuits and ICS. So mm. they, um, when they saw me more as a philosopher than as a theologian, they said, ICS is the place for you. Hmm. Um, and perhaps that statement is connected to previous events in my, in my life. I, I did my undergrad in philosophy and most of it at the national university of Columbia. And I finished here at U of D and to be honest, my the part that I did at the National University was more formative mm, yeah. because it was the beginning, because uh, uh, of my classmates, because of the community around it. And it was a great place. Uh, I loved it, but um, it was a very secular um, department. Mm. Not only secular, it was um, militant um, mm. against religion. So you... Kind of needed to hide the fact that you were religious, if you were. Um, there were two or three of us who were kind of undercover, hmm. um, like religious people of different traditions, studying there. But we we couldn't really share it because it was about studying philosophy, and philosophy should be sanitized from any theology or religion or hmm. uh, faith component.
0: I can see how your reaction to Nietzsche might be uh, averse. <laughs>
3: Yes, that has to do a little bit with it. Um, Yes, and and funnily enough, um, there there were a lot of things about that formation that were important for me to have first, to then encounter Christian philosophy Mm. here at ICS. Um, To have kind of those tools and have those frameworks and then go back to look at all this philosophy that I thought was completely devoid of of faith or religion and then see, oh, well, this emerges out of something that was deeply religious and that has all these re- uh, this faith uh, component underpinning it or is a response to it. So when you miss that part of the story, which is what happened there, like we had philosophy courses all the way to Augustine and then it will start in the cart again. Hmm. So we had a, a, a very, very big planks yeah. there. So um, that was one of the things that brought me to ICS, knowing that there was a place where I wasn't only going to be able to study the philosophy that has been influenced by religion, but also where I could be a person of faith studying uh, philosophy. Um, The second aspect of it um, is perhaps the, the connection between scholarship and Activism, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. uh, of like work. Uh, The fact that um, at ICS um, we don't frown upon people who are trying to understand things that are happening in reality uh, through philosophy. Um, That was the sentiment at the National University. Uh, That was we. This is a purely academic environment, and and asking questions about kind of our reality is. Both confusing and um, frowned upon, so we don't we don't want that. We want to ask questions about questions about answers that were given by philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you study any philosopher, you you'll see at least the the our canon philosophy will see that every one of those philosophers is answering to questions about their own reality. Yeah, so it it seems it. It was already very confusing for me back then and very uh, jarring and it made me very uncomfortable. But coming here and seeing the possibility of it being done differently was great. And mm. ICS was well the space to do that. Um, there is also something else about the, um, the spirit of, uh, of dialogue. That happens here, and this is actually a positive thing of my undergrad in Colombia. There was a lot of dialogue happening in many different contexts. There was dialogue in, um, in like amongst the students, between students and professors, between um, students and the outside world. So there there were a lot of things happening um, that allowed us to to see how important dialogue was for the exercise of philosophy. And I missed that a bit when I was at U of D uh yeah. finished my undergrad, it was, it was a very knowledge imparting kind of context, but, um, the dialogue, except for very few seminars where that was possible, that wasn't there. Hmm. And that's something key to anything that happens at ICS. So coming here and arriving, I, I took a course in ICS before I was an ICS student, a student and so when I arrived here and I, and I noticed that that was the format, that dialogue was, uh, at the core of, um, of instruction here, made me, made me think that ICS was the place for me and, and I believe for many other people who want to, um, approach philosophical, um, like teaching in the same way that I do.
0: Yeah. Great. I'm definitely one of those people as well. So it's great to hear uh, compadre.
3: (laughs) Compadre, that's a great word. Thank you. I haven't heard that
2: word in years. (laughs)
0: And that brings us to the fourth and last of our new regular segments, and our favorite segment every week. What is your pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Danielle, what's your pleasure?
1: Well, at the time that we are recording this episode, it has just barely passed American Thanksgiving, hmm. which means Christmas music is now universally acceptable to play. Um, <laughs> so I have started listening to what has become one of my go-to Christmas albums to stick with our music theme as well. Um, and it's called Blood Oranges in the Snow by Over the Rhine. Hmm. And this is is also fitting to me because I just got back from a trip to Cincinnati and they are an Ohio-based band, couple, pair, duo, whatever. Um, and they they get their name from a neighborhood in Cincinnati hmm. actually called Over the Rhine, which is something that I learned and 100% improved my knowledge of the city of Cincinnati because I had none. Uh, anyway, so the Christmas album... It's I love it because it's very bluesy. They're very bluesy. Um, it falls in the vein of the more atypical kind of Christmas albums that aren't like sugary, jingly, whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. But still I feel vanity. it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. <laughs>
1: oh, no. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, so Over the Rhine. Um, it's a very it's more of the moody style, like Christmas albums. Um, it, it's always a quicker listen than I think it's going to be Hmm. for some reason, but it's really nice. It's my, it's my go-to recommendation. Blood oranges in the snow.
0: Great. Yeah. Um, well, I'm getting into the Christmas spirit, so I'll put that one alongside, uh, Joni Mitchell's, uh, river. Um, (laughs) my pleasure for this week is a new EP by Lake street dive. Um, which is entitled Freak Yourself Out. And a fun story I have about Lake Street Dive is I was, um, at their concert a couple of years ago at the Danforth Music Theater mm. and, uh, the opener called me out amongst everyone else, handed me the mic and asked me if I wanted a sandwich and I did not know how to respond. <laughs> so fun fact.
1: They didn't give you a sandwich.
0: They didn't give me a sandwich, well, that's no. That's a disappointment. I know. Maybe if I was more assertive, I would have gotten a real sandwich.
1: <laughs> like, give me a sandwich. Assertion's
0: not my strong suit, though. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> I know what you mean. Like, Street Dive is lots of fun.
0: They're so much fun. Super jazzy. Oh. Jazzy, is that know. right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it dep- depends. Depends on the song. motown bluesy. Yeah. R&B. Yeah. They got it all.
1: They got it all. <laughs> Anything you want, except <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of our show this week. If you would like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalface at icscanada.edu. You can also find us all on Twitter. You can find Hector at at A-C-E-R-O-F underscore Hector. You can find my co-host at at Mark Standish, and you can find me at at Beware the Yeti. You can also follow ICS at at I-N-S-C-H-R.
0: And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.